turn to the book of Luke, chapter 1. I'll be reading Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of the greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For He has looked upon the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He is mighty, and He has done great things for me. And holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich, He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Holy Father, I ask that You grace me with absolute, undeserved favor to the wretched sinner like me. But grace me to represent this glorious hymn, this glorious magnification of your saving work in front of and to and on behalf of these people. Amen. Alright, let's just catch up where we were in the story. God sends the angel Gabriel to Zechariah to announce the conception and the birth of John the Baptist. Six months later, the angel Gabriel is sent to Mary to inform her that God was going to incarnate Himself in her womb and she would give birth. Mary, I asked, okay, I've never had sexual relations, so how? And Gabriel answered, the Holy Spirit. And he gave her an added confirmation in verse 36, saying, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, 
has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called all her life barren. And so Mary packs her bags, gets ready to leave and take the journey south 80 to 100 miles, three, four day journey. It's a long way. This is like my wife and I going back to see her family in Texas. Okay, it's a big trip. There are no phones. There's no internet. There's no postman coming by every day with a letter and saying, look, Elizabeth, the barren one, is pregnant. She does not know this externally. She only knows it because Gabriel, the angel, informed her. And so she arrives at Zechariah and Elizabeth's house. And Elizabeth sees her. And they say, hi. And John the Baptist turned a backflip in her belly. This was not the word for a normal kick of a baby. He leaped in Elizabeth. And then the text says, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And here comes this prophetic word. Elizabeth doesn't know externally that Mary's pregnant. They just said, Hi, John leaps. And then Elizabeth, by the Holy Spirit, with a loud cry. This is not a normal conversation here. She says, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. And, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That's stunning. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And remember, Gabriel already said to Zechariah that John the Baptist, while in the womb, would be filled with the Holy Spirit. John is probably nine inches long at this time. He's a pound and a half. And he is a human being. I continue with Elizabeth. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Just picture Mary. I mean, you're already, come on, virgins don't get pregnant. And, but she believed. She packed her bag, she took off. She gets there, she hadn't said a word, and God confirmed you were not hallucinating with that Gabriel experience when she hears these words from Elizabeth. And that's all Mary needs. And so she can't contain herself now. And we have what is called, if you just look at the headings, what do they call it? The Magnificat. Well, what the, why? Well, because the Greek word means to magnify. And when you translate it into Latin which was the Bible of the Western Church for over a thousand years, the Latin Vulgate, the word for magnify in Latin is magnificat. We translate it in English, 
magnified. That's why we call it the Magnificat, because of the words when she says, My soul magnifies the Lord. So a bird's eye view, what we have here in this song, in this praise, is simply this. The first part is just that. My soul is like a magnifying lens that focuses in on God, my Savior's greatness. He says, you want to come in? Come look inside Mary's heart. He says, do you see the joy of my spirit? Okay, then everything else that comes after that is the reason for the joy she has. It's twofold. Because this great God has done great things for me. And then the other reason we'll see is because of who this great God is. His nature. His attributes. So, let's start there. Let's start with what Mary, don't miss it teenagers, this 13 to 15 year old, what she sees that causes her to genuinely worship her Maker. First, she is contemplating the attributes of God. You look in a systematic theology, I don't even know, is there, there's not even one, is there one? There's still one back there on that table. The attributes of God. That's important. But she does not do this in merely an academic sense of attributes. We mean that which by definition God is and has to be to be God. Uh-uh. She is seeing them with her mind and her heart and so she can't contain her worship of God in light of His attributes, like His omnipotence. Like His power. See verse 49? This is the reason she rejoices like she does. For He who is mighty has done great things for me. Verse 51. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. She sees this omnipotent God of Israel, the one who flung the galaxies into existence, the one who very actively opened up the Red Sea and killed all the Egyptian army. That's why she's worshiping this mighty one. That one has done great things for me, this nobody teenage girl. And she goes on to say, not only is he mighty, and holy is his name. She doesn't mean his name's holy like as opposed to George and Bill. and She means his name, meaning his essence, his being, the totality of this God is holy. Meaning utterly 
separated, set apart, distinct, transcendent, righteous, pure. He is holy other. Now, remember this is the sweet teenage Mary. And these contemplations of God's nature in His essence leads her in this Magnificat to describe characteristics of those people who are the targets of God's judgment. Look at verse 30, I mean 51. He has shown strength with His arm. It's a way of speaking about God's mighty deeds in the earth. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Pride is at the core of sin. It's at the core of the original sin that brought Satan down. It is at the essence of the temptation that Satan used in the garden with Eve. You, you don't get it. God's trying to hide the good stuff from you. You want to be like God, right? Not dependent. Not like a child who is needy. That's at the core of all sin. And as Peter made clear in chapter 5 of his first epistle, God is opposed against the proud. He hates pride. Pride, what we all know very intimately and experientially, as sinners, at the core it is. I don't need, need you. I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm a self-made man, self-made woman. I mean, it's nice, God, that you say that I should come to you and be dependent upon you for everything, but, and I will when I really need you, but I don't need you. For, for everything, I'm doing rather okay right now. I don't need to be on welfare. That attitude in any and every human being is the essence of sin. And Mary in the Magnificat is expressing that God's holiness, His attributes, who He is, this is how He Responds in holiness to sin, to pride. And, and I think, get it, Luke's the only one that gives us this account. And remember, Luke is writing to Theophilus. You know, he's not lower class. He's a Roman official. And there may be something in Luke's mind with Theophilus of a warning here. Do not think 
Theophilus, as you hear God come upon Mary in this prophecy, never, ever think that because God is mighty, He is omnipotent, He is holy, He is great, that in any way, therefore, God favors the great in our eyes over the poor or insignificant of the world. Start with verse 52 again. Mary says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich He has sent away empty. So, notice here in the Magnificat, God's judgment on these people. He scatters the proud stock. He acts and confuses their mind. And if you don't think He can do that, just read about Nebuchadnezzar. That any of us right now have any degree of sanity is owing to God's pure mercy. He brings down the rulers. He sends away the rich empty. This is not a passive God. He's very active. He's very active in judgment. It's not true that God somehow created the world with cause and effect and spun it into existence. And and even hell. Hell exists, but God doesn't send anybody there. Listen. Pastors say that kind of stuff. And it's not true. He's very purposefully and perfectly active in judgment. See, before we 21st century people balk at, at the idea of God actively coming against sinners, you've got to understand that what's going on here in the Magnificat, that baby in Mary's womb, it doesn't make any sense unless you understand God is righteously wrathful, unless you understand God's just condemnation and judgment. This whole narrative makes no sense. And in light of that, the travesty in the American church over the last 30 or 40 years with a philosophy of turning how do you do church and you turn it into a department store. And, and, you know, you figure out what the people are going to buy, and if they're not going to buy stuff in your department store, you don't waste that floor space on it because you want them to buy. And you seek after the knowledge of what does society feel they want in church. It works really good in business. And it'll work in church to get people in. And people do it with well-meaning intentions. But you cannot, you cannot ultimately be faithful to Scripture if that's the bottom line. 
Because if you're like a department store and you want people to purchase, it is why slowly you might say stuff like, well, but this is Sunday morning so we won't get into theology very deeply. There's a type of Christian who likes to know God more and so we'll have discipleship classes on the side and Once you become a department store, it's very easy for the biblical clarity of sin and pride in that doctrine to be... We don't want to... No, we won't emphasize any of that. God's love, oh, and with the self-esteem philosophy of the day, that's good. People like that. They'll buy. We'll, We'll emphasize... That. But, but, but thinking, look, look at the text. Tell people on Sunday morning to do that, and they come from all walks of life, from PhDs to fifth grade education, and teenagers, my goodness, you can't expect a teenager to think like that. Really. Some of your teenagers understand algebra more than you do because you forgot it. And we're going to demean them? Teenagers, don't let adults treat you that way, especially in the church. God is the sovereign one who is in control of saving people. He doesn't need our ingenuity. The consumer is not in control. You come to Him His way as a broken, messed up sinner or you do not come to Him at all. You might become a churchgoer. You might become a baptized person. You might become a member of a church but it doesn't necessarily mean you belong to the Savior. And so now, Mary, thank you, Mary, thank you, Mary. She doesn't leave it there. The the high point of her praise is not judgment. Oh, that's important, because the high point won't make any sense without it. The high point of her praise is God's mercy. His undeserved love to His creatures who do not deserve it and cannot earn it. Understanding God's mercy is essential. Now, mercy is essentially the same. And you see in the New Testament the word grace. Charis is grace. Mercy, aleas. Mercy, they're the same thing. They're God's undeserved favor. Mercy just has this emphasis on God's grace to you, utterly unearned in the midst of your horrendous situation. You're bloody on the street and you can't fix yourself up. So you get this picture of you really need mercy. And Mary 
praises Him for it in verse 50. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Yeah, in here, we learn two things about this mercy that Mary's overcome with. One is, God's mercy is sovereign mercy. Verse 54. He has helped His servant Israel. Stop. What she's saying is, because Gabriel came to me and informed me that I was going to give birth to the son of Israel, David. This is the fulfillment. That's what she's saying. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. What are you talking about? As He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, Almost 2,000 years ago, she's saying, 1,700 years ago, as He spoke mercy to Abraham and to His offspring forever. So, why do I say sovereign mercy? Read the Bible. God came out of the blue to a pagan idolater named Abram. And He chose him. That is undeserved mercy. Why did God not choose Abraham's dad? Or Jim down the street? Why would He choose this guy way up in Ur or the Chaldees, or oh, they're already traveling with in Haran. Why way up there in Mesopotamia? Why, why didn't he already choose just a guy who already lived in Canaan? Why did he choose Abraham? And, and then through Abraham, his son Isaac, and not his son Ishmael. And then he did choose Abraham and his son Isaac, but why did, why did he choose Jacob, Isaac's son, and not Esau? The answer is there is no answer that exists outside of God. In other words, where God looks up one day and says, Aha, that's why I'll do it. He has mercy on whom He has mercy. That's Paul's answer. And that's why we don't know other than His sovereign choice. That's the mercy. Abraham's connecting this angel coming to her, the Savior coming, connected with the promise that God has always made, and this has all been by God's Mercy. The 
second thing we learn about this mercy is that it's a covenant of mercy because God chose Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And through you, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless not only you, but I'm going to bless people from every nation. This is what I'm going to do. A covenant means God had promised. He had bound Himself with an oath to do something. And therefore, it cannot not be done. There was nothing in the people of Israel that stood out as good or distinct from the Chinese or the Greeks or the differing African tribes or those crazy cold weather northern Europeans. Nothing was better about this people that it caused God to choose them. They were chosen. And they are the chosen because they're chosen. That's God's mercy. I'm going to bless you, Abraham. And I'm going to bless all the nations through you. And now what we see culminating here with Mary is that that promise to Abraham becomes clear in the New Testament that God was saying, I'm going to take someone from your descendants who will be the one who sheds the blood of the new covenant. And that new covenant, it means when He purchases that covenant by His blood, it's the covenant that not only makes it possible for sinners to be saved, it guarantees that particular sinners will be saved. That's God's mercy. Let me just turn to one passage. Jeremiah chapter 31. Mary's rooting this Gabriel experience in theology, biblical theology. She may have been illiterate, but she knows theology. It's a very oral culture. She heard these texts over and over and over again. And God said this through Jeremiah in chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Oh, what sweet words. I, God, will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But no, this covenant is not like the Mosaic covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one say or teach his neighbor know the Lord because everyone in this covenant will know me 
from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. Because I will, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He's promised through Abraham. He did give the law. And he says, "Uh -uh, there's a new covenant coming. And we're going to partake of communion this morning where the baby in Mary's womb 30 years or so years later is going to say this is the blood of the new covenant. And that Mary's doing is saying to this Jeremiah prophecy, to the promise to Abraham, to God's absolute commitment to save Israel. She's saying yes when she says, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Now, the crucial question for every one of us in here is who are these people? Who are those who, unlike what Mary has already said, the characteristics of those who are the objects of His judgment, who are they who are the objects of His mercy? And there's clues here by just looking into the heart of Mary because it didn't just stay in her soul. It came out of her mouth. That's what would do after I do this big parenthesis. Because Mary's got to be talked about a little bit in dealing with these passages. Or what we would call Mariology because of the history of the church. Particularly in the Roman Catholic Church. Two significant texts that we that are our texts this morning. Let's read them again. Verse 42. Elizabeth says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. And Mary says in verse 48, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me Mary blessed. As a Roman Catholic growing up, I was taught not only to pray to God, but to pray to Mary. The Hail Mary. Hail means I'm calling upon you. That's what the word means. Summoning you, Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you, Amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus, Holy Mary, Mother of God. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. And that pray, prayer is the central prayer of the rosary. 
There are a number of others. There are our fathers in it. But as you work yourself around, you're saying tons of Hail Mary. I forget, is it ten in between and then in our Father? And you, and you go. And some of us, and you've, some of you have experienced and you've done your confession. You've got to say Hail Mary. So you can do it really fast. Like Hail Mary, for grace, Lord, with these, but start one, two, bless you, Jesus, Amen. Amen. And then if you're a teenage kid who's absolutely out of his mind, you might pray that during a Notre Dame game. And of course, Notre Dame means the Virgin Mary, or Our Lady in French. Okay, so. Okay. Is Mary unique? Yeah. You better believe it. There is only one human being in the history of the world who gave birth to the second person of the Holy Trinity. She's unique. But the problem is, there has been developed other doctrines, theologies, about Mary that are not in the Bible. That that particularly start to exalt her as a morally unique person. For instance, over centuries developed, and then finally, that's how stuff happened, it didn't just happen overnight, but finally became official Roman Catholic doctrine, not until the year 1854, the Immaculate Conception. Now, that conception doesn't refer to the baby in Mary. That conception refers to Mary while she's in her mommy's belly. Immaculate, clean, pure. Meaning, Mary was born without original sin. Meaning, without a sin nature. Connected to that has developed the doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity that even after giving birth and some even debate when she got birth and they kind of just pulled it out of her belly because you can picture stuff that she never had sexual relations ever even with Joseph down the line and connected with that is her not only not being born a sinner and with sin and she never therefore throughout her life committed an act of sin and connected to that is the official doctrine now of the assumption of Mary. Meaning, at her death, her body's dead, it wasn't there to rot in the grave, but was taken up in to heaven. Now, I'm just, these teachings don't have basis in the text of Scripture. They don't have it in our text this morning or anywhere else in the New Testament. Mary is not a dispenser of grace to you. She is a glorious model because she's a recipient of God's grace and mercy to sinners. Gabriel said, oh, graced one. And sometimes you get this term, you hear it if you have your Roman Catholic background, some of you do like me. Oh, Mary, full of grace. Does that mean, okay, that does, does it mean when Gabriel says, Mary, 
Favored one, graced one, same word, graced one. Does it mean that Mary had something distinct within her like this, this uh, huge cup of, called Mary to overflow with grace to people? Is that what Gabriel meant? He didn't. He meant grace. He meant this favor is coming to you. You're favored. And as he goes on in verse 30, Gabriel says, "You don't freak out, Mary. I'm an angel. That's what you should do. You should freak out if you see one. Well, I've got, got to be biblical unless you meet them unawares, as Hebrew says. But so you wouldn't know it's an angel anyway. He means you have found grace, not judgment, with God. In other words, there has been no human being since the fall of Adam and Eve that was born without the nature of sin except Jesus Christ. The Roman church would say except for Jesus and Mary. Yeah. What is stunning about Luke's narrative is that he goes on in this narrative. It You can interpret how you want. It just seems to me to be somewhat of a warning not to over-venerate, lift up Mary as above all other kind of people under God's grace. This is what I mean. So you continue in the narrative in chapter 11. You there? In verse 27, Luke writes concerning the words of Jesus. As he, that is Jesus, was talking, preaching, saying these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and she said, Blessed is the womb that bore you. And blessed blessed are, are her breasts from which you nursed. In other words, wow, what a woman! But Jesus said to that publicly, Blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. In chapter 8, Luke lets us in on this, starting with verse 19. There he is again. Then his mother, here's Mary, 30 or so years later now, his mother Mary and his brothers came to him but they could not reach Jesus because of the crowds. Too many people. And then he was told, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the Word of God and do it. Okay. Now, having, having said that, let me very willingly along with the text of Scripture this morning 
say that it is absolutely and definitely true that we should not fail to admire Abraham's faith. We should not fail to learn from, preach from, teach from Abel's faith. Look at that sacrifice. It was pleasing to God. What awesome mercy to Him. We should not fail to learn from that fellow wretched sinner, David, of what it is to have a heart after God. And therefore, we, we should not, definitely not, fail to look at the mercy, the graced one, Mary, for all generations. His heart that was imbibing and receiving and was the object of God's saving mercy. Not only was it in this one particular teenage girl that God incarnated Himself. But now as we learn the close of this sermon, the, Mary's words, her heart, her life, are glorious examples that we should look to and say, God, help me be like her. So this is what we mean by object. She's an example of an object of God's mercy and not judgment. It comes out first in her praise. Listen to what she says. God, my Savior. Now, you don't feel that. And you gotta, if you read the text, she feels it. From her heart, she joyfully is saying that. You don't feel happy about God's action towards you personally as somehow bringing salvation. And yes, there's a sense and she means the salvation to Israel. But she's part of it and she personalizes it. My Savior. You don't say that if you don't see yourself in a position of neediness to be saved from something. So, what do these objects of mercy look like? One thing they look like is this. Not, oh God, the Savior of my mom and dad, but my Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit re rejoices in God. My Savior, are you under God's mercy? There, there's something else that Mary clues us in on. And what, what do these people look like that have received God's mercy? What are they looking like? The other thing they're looking like with this, with this is that they're like Mary. They are seeking God in His Word. The written Word. The Word that she is knowing very well. Why am I saying that? We don't have time to do it, but if you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And a lot of us love Hannah so much, we name our kids Hannah. And Hannah was barren. And God mercied Hannah 
And Hannah was so happy. Since you've done this, I'm going to give this baby who is Samuel the prophet to you. And Hannah has a song. She has a prayer. And Mary has memorized it. She knows Hannah's prayer from 1 Samuel 2 really well. If you put Mary's Magnificat up against Hannah's prayer, you'll be stunned at the similarity. She would be accused of plagiarism. But she's not writing, and, and you know, if you're a good plagi- if you plagiarize real well, what you do is you don't do actually word for word, you kind of change some things up. She's really good at it. But what's just going on is this. She loves God's Word and the things she knows about God, her Savior who has revealed Himself. And I cannot imagine her not meditating on Hannah's prayer during the four-day journey on a donkey up to Elizabeth's house. So when she gets there, spontaneity comes out of her related to her particular situation. And it is informed by God's written Word. She was permeated with Scripture. She's exalting in God her Savior, and in her words, she makes it also connected to that very clear that the objects of God's mercy are, quote, those who fear Him from generation to generation. That fearing Him is it's throughout the New Testament this idea. It just those who this is you can ask me, what do you think that means? This is what I think she means. To fear God here. Those whose eyes are opened and thus they see the reality of the true God. Not the ones that we form and make up in our minds. But they see the reality of the God who's revealed Himself in Scripture. And thus, that eye-opening experience understands God's position and His authority. And there's a type of fear there. But here's the thing about this fear. It's a fear that now understands and goes along with, I'm a recipient of His mercy. God's true mercy in Jesus Christ, doesn't remove the reality of God's whole attributes to an extent where you call Him the man upstairs. There's no fear. Okay, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. Let us sin that tomorrow we die. But it's all grace. Never Paul said? Paul said, God forbid... Paul said, ooh, the judgment on people that interpret the saving grace of Jesus. No! It's this glorious tension. Because you cannot, and we cannot, and we don't taste the grace by which we are being saved to the extent we don't understand really that hell exists. And really that you belong there. And there's this tension of awesome wonder before the one true holy righteous God upon whom I've received mercy. And that's there's, here's, the, here's the last thing I see here about recipients of mercy. When those things are 
are alive and popping on the inside of those who by God's Spirit have been born again. It's producing a view of yourself up against God. And the view you'll have of yourself is in and of yourself. You're very low. Mary says it this way in verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his slave. She, as a recipient of mercy, is a happy slave. There is an eye-opening experience that is hand in glove with recipients of the mercy of God purchased by Jesus Christ and thus thrusting them into the new covenant. The closer children of God walk with Him, this dynamic seems to be what happens. And you see it in the Bible and you see it in church history. You become more overwhelmed with your sin. Not less. Now, God's so merciful to all of us. I've, I've been a Christian for 30 years, and, and so you kind of expect this. And from, from, from people like me, who, who become true Christians only by God's mercy, but sometimes you see a spiritual pride in young believers. It's okay. All right. God is merciful. And if they're, and they're, if just, they're a true believer... Watch that person 30 years down the road as God's sanctification works. It's just kind of the way it works. This is how Paul speaks. And this is not the voice of a pre-Christian man. It is the voice of a Christian, post-new birth person in Romans 7. Wretched man that I am! will deliver me from this remaining sin body of death almost 500 years ago concerning this dynamic of lowly state you become more but the more holy that we might become by his grace is hand in glove with the realities you wake up every day how undone you are and almost 500 years ago, John Calvin, I just think, nailed it when he, when he said it this way in his Institutes, quote, It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating Him to scrutinizing Himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate, inborn in all of us, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord 
who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. The more we see how great God is, the more we will sense our own sinfulness, which will lead us, I'm going to add this part, to sing with Mary, to magnify all the more His abundant mercy toward us in Christ. Mary's song, it, it sings and has sung for centuries to people. Especially during this season of Advent. She's ringing out as an evangelist. She's saying, are you a recipient of mercy? We know the whole story. Are you a recipient of mercy that will be purchased by the baby in my womb? Have you been brought low? Have you mercifully been brought to see yourself as you are in the light of true reality of a holy God who made you? Has God's mercy caused you to hunger? To be hungry? Being hungry, she's saying in the Magnificat, and partaking and eating is the essence, the definition, a description of what saving faith is. Listen to how Mary preaches it in verse 53. He has filled The hungry with good things. And the rich, he sent away empty. The baby in her womb will grow up and he will say one day, Blessed are those who are who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why, Jesus? Because they will be satisfied. The prerequisite for partaking of this mercy, the prerequisite for being evidence that you are mercy, the prerequisite for eating is to be hungry. Because if you are filled with self-righteousness, religion, I'm basically good. I know, I mean, to err is human. But I'm basically good. I'm not like that person. You're not hungry. The people Mary's talking about, He has filled the hungry with good things, do not understand the mindset of those who say, I'm hungry, I'll take a little bit of that Christianity and dish it out and put it on the plate. I'll eat that with all the other stuff I'm eating. No, they won't. They're not hungry 
for this food. Hungry people here know they're going to die if they don't eat. It's not an add-on to their life. It is that hungering and that partaking of mercy that leads Mary to magnify. Remember, so here's the foundation as we close. This is why this teenage girl born in sin is saying, I, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices. It's so happy in God, my Savior. That is true worship. And that teaches us. Mary teaches us that true worship involves not just your thoughts about truth. That has to be there. But it involves the affections deep down in the soul. She didn't say, my mouth magnifies, though it did. She says, my soul. She says, my spirit. She doesn't mean I got a soul and I have a spirit. She said, the inmost, let me say it this way, in, 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 if I were going to, okay, we won't do it. Let me, <laughs> the immaterial part of me. Yeah, in logic, in philosophy, what that means is this. You can't sense that with your five senses. We can't look at Mary and say, I can smell, taste, touch, hear her soul. You can't. It's immaterial. It's real. It's got substance. She's in touch with it as much as you are in touch of it too. She's saying, without a mouth right now, without a body, without anything anyone else can actually see, my soul is magnified. My spirit is rejoicing. That is the partaking of the mercy from which God saves people from Himself. His judgment. And it, thank goodness, that in the soul did produce something we can sense. It produced the words coming out of her mouth, the Magnificat. This is why Christians have always been singing people. Because with Mary, and with any of us who are being saved by her son, if there's something in the soul, it's going to have to in various ways, in many ways, and one of them is singing. It's not by accident that the largest book in the Bible is the song book of prayer. She's saying, for everyone who has come as hungry sinners to Jesus, you're a singer, aren't you? And if you're not, you've got to learn to sing. Because we're going to sing forever according to Scripture, stuff 
like this. Worthy are You to take the scroll and to open its seals. If for You were slain, and by Your blood You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. As we sing, we're going to be passing out the bread, the body, the cup, the blood. As we do have this great Magnificat in mind, that God came to Mary and incarnated Himself in her, so that 33 or 4 years later, that true human being, the second person of the Trinity, would one night, as our representatives, with His apostles say, this is My body and this is My blood of the new covenant which purchased you. If you're purchased by Him, let us eat and drink happily. We will pray over the bread and the cup together in a moment.